0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
1: I'm
2: Stuart Vonney. I'm Harris Faulkner. I'm Brian Kilmeade. And this is the Fox News Rundown.
0: Today, January 18th, 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. How much power do government agencies have? So much that they can make a decision that results in your business shouldering the burden of a large new daily fee? Imagine the government coming to you and saying, hey, well, you know, we
3: as a government don't have enough money to fund the expansion of these programs that we want, so we're going to make you pay it directly.
2: I'm Dave Anthony. While former President Trump hopes to keep up his momentum in New Hampshire, One of his supporters is running in Michigan, trying to turn a blue seat in Congress Republican red. He's going to need a partner in the Senate
4: to help close the border, to get the economy back under control.
5: And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown.
0: Supreme Court has heard arguments in a case that involves how much power government agencies have over our lives. It had to do with two appeals over the same issue. Do Atlantic herring fishermen have to pay for federal officials to board their vessels to monitor their work? They'd had monitors on their vessels for years, but suddenly the fishermen were being told they had to pay for additional monitoring. Some of the arguments centered around what is known as chevron deference, legal deference given to a government agency to implement their own rules based on their own expertise. Chief Justice John Roberts gave an example.
2: Let's suppose the statute says the Department of Transportation will set uh, length limits for trucks that are reasonable. Right. Uh, is that a legal question for the court or is that a policy question for the agency? I think that it's a, the, the legal authority says they've got to be reasonable. That's a term that courts apply in many situations.
0: The attorney representing the fishermen said in that case, reliance could be on an agency as the expectation was whatever was reasonable. Justice Elena Kagan put forth her own examples and explained, the court can say, You know, the best option is to listen carefully and to uh, defer if it's reasonable and if it's consistent with everything that we know that Congress has said, to defer to people who actually know things about these things, to, you know, to, to people who understand the way particular questions fit within a broader statutory and regulatory scheme. In other words... Judges should know what they don't know. So what exactly happened to bring this case about and who is impacted?
3: What really happened was, um, over the course of a few years, this regulation was developed. And essentially, so we've always had to take government observers on board
0: our vessels. That's required by Congress. We've done it for decades, never had a problem with it. Megan Lapp is a fisheries liaison for Seafreeze, one of those challenging the Department of Commerce in this lawsuit.
3: For this particular regulation, though, the government wanted to expand its own existing program but didn't have the money to do so. So they didn't get the money from Congress. So they said, you know what, the people that we regulate, they can pay out of pocket. My understanding is this was going to
0: cost you quite, quite a bit a day.
3: Yeah, the estimates um, are $710 a day, um, which is more than our core might
0: make on a day. Yeah, I was just going to say, I heard you say that earlier. Um, that's crazy. Was it going to have to be every day or just when they decided on what days? Well, their goal was to have 50% of
3: the trips taken by the herring fishery covered, both combined with the government-paid monitors as well as the ones that we were going to uh, be forced to pay for. So 50% of all of your trips, um,
0: all of your herring fishery trips, covered. Now, you said that you guys have always had to take government observers... Um, on board i imagine that's part of the magnus and stevens act right where i guess noah yep. uh, has to manage fisheries that means uh keeping things i guess uh, regulated to a certain extent you know we don't overfish this area we let you know the stock replenish in that area so were you thus far when you had observers on your ship you you have not been paying for them like I said, you know, we've taken them for decades.
3: You're correct. It's the Magnuson-Stevens Act that requires um, that we take them. And we've never contested that. We've complied. We've taken them when selected. Um, you know, they come on board and collect biological data used in fisheries science. They also collect, you know, other types of data on the trip itself, as well as act as enforcement agents. And we've never, you know, we've we've never said that we don't want to do that. But paying is a totally different situation.
0: Yeah, especially given the amount it's costing. You, you, I, I think I heard you say this is feels almost like a, a new tax. And one would think, well, <laughs> if it is a tax, then that would have to be approved by lawmakers.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there, the government's estimate was that it would take away 20% of the annual return to owners. So imagine the government coming to you and saying, hey, well, you know, we as a government don't have enough money to fund the expansion of these programs that we want so we're gonna make you pay it directly oh and by the way it's gonna come at the cost of 20 percent of your annual income like nobody would stand for that
0: when this case was initially challenged a lower court judge sided with the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration under the Magnuson Stevens Act which was earlier referenced but attorneys for LaF and others in the fishing industry said that was a misinterpretation of an agency's powers and it went too far
1: We don't think Congress gave the agency the power to do what it's trying to do
0: uh, here. As Megan said, the monitors have been on there for a long time. Mark Chenoweth is president and chief legal officer of the new Civil Liberties Alliance.
1: By the way, they have to feed the monitors when they're on the boat. They have to provide them a berth on the boat for a place to sleep. These are overnight trips, sometimes several days or more than a week at a time. And they have to feed them and, and provide them a berth that, that entire time. So that, that burden already exists. And then they're, now they're asking to be paid on top of that. And Congress never said that. Congress never said the salaries were the responsibility of the boats. That's something that NOAA made up.
0: Okay, so this went before the Supreme Court on Wednesday. And let's let's just backtrack for a minute. For decades, the Supreme Court has recognized this notion that federal agencies have pretty wide latitude to make decisions, and the Biden administration, their attorneys, cite that precedent here, that we have thousands of these administrative decisions like this that have already been made, they're already adhered to, and and this is called the the chevron deference, right? This, this deference that we provide these agencies. Did you get the sense during Supreme Court arguments Wednesday that there were any justices that were kind of skeptical of the Chevron deference, regardless of the fact that it's precedent.
1: I think several of the justices expressed uh, deep skepticism about Chevron deference and the role that it plays in taking the responsibility for statutory interpretation away from judges and giving it instead to agencies. You mentioned a minute ago that a lower court uh, in this case had interpreted the Magnuson-Stevens Act to to allow the agency to to charge Uh, boats like our clients. But what the judge actually did was applied Chevron deference and said, well, you know, it's a reasonable interpretation of the statute. I'm not saying it's the best interpretation of the statute. I'm not saying it's the way I would interpret the statute. But the agency's interpretation is in the realm of the possible. It's reasonable. Mm. And therefore, I'm going to defer to the agency's interpretation. That's how we got where we are, is because this Chevron deference gives agencies the benefit of the doubt when they're interpreting something. And that's not really consistent with the due process of law that we would expect in a court. When you're when you're in court, you expect the judge to treat both sides equally, not to put on a, a thumb on the scale for the government.
0: Okay, actually, that leads me very nicely into my next question, because what this really boils down to, it seems, is how much power an agency has, and if an agency's statute or rule is ambiguous or hard to understand or can be minced. You know, precedent, it seems, is saying, well, you have to side with the agency's interpretation. And one of the justices to that point was saying, you know, we we judges, we need to know what we don't know. We need to be able to rely these agencies. Is that a roadblock here to your argument?
1: I think that was Justice Kagan who said that, if I remember right, she was talking about the need for some humility on the part uh, of, uh, of judges. But no, I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a roadblock. I think that it's the proper role of judges to uh, decide what the law is. And if Congress, I mean, as Megan said, Congress has required them to take these monitors for a long time. They never objected to that because that was Congress that was ordering that. Mm. It's when the agency comes along and does something that Congress didn't order and says, well, the statute's silent on that or the statute's ambiguous on that. Well, if we're going to say that an agency can delve into a statute and every silence or every ambiguity that it finds gives the agency power that's a really odd thing to say because ordinarily we think that what gives the power to the agency is the text of the statute not what's not in the statute not you know not the silences of the statute but the mm. text of the statute and and the government was very explicit uh, in front of uh, of the court uh, about the fact that they were asking the court to, to, in the case of any silence or ambiguity, allow the agency to interpret that as Congress delegating them authority to fill that gap. And I just don't think that's the right role for federal agencies. And I don't think that's what Congress thinks it's doing when it writes laws.
0: I think that's what I was stuck on. Like, well, fine. Okay. If an agency is an expert and they have a new rule, you know, based on their expertise, okay, then fine. But like everyone just has to fork over hundreds of new dollars a day or a week or a month suddenly when an agency decides and the legal recourse is slim because well, Chevron Deference?
1: Yeah, that, essentially that's it. And and you know, here I think this, this case is a great example. NOAA is not an expert in I mean, what's the expertise they're bringing to bear here in saying that the boats need to be the ones to pay them? There isn't any real NOAA expertise there that's being that's being relied on. So I think the expertise point, particularly in this case, just falls out. I don't I don't think there's really any NOAA expertise that a judge wouldn't be able to bring to bear in deciding whether the statute was allowing this sort of payment regime or not.
0: What is the the I guess the legal work around like we heard Justice Kavanaugh said that you know this sort of highlights these wild swings that we see right every four to eight years depending on the administration what, what is the path forward then to avoid that
1: I think the path forward is to allow the judges to interpret the statute instead of the agencies because once a court of law has interpreted the statute and given it definite meaning, then everyone can rely on that going forward. And if a lower court gets it wrong, you could appeal that. If an intermediate appellate court gets that wrong, you can try to take it all the way up to the Supreme Court, as Megan was able to do uh, in this case with NCLA's help, Uh, and then you can get to the final answer. Uh, But if you're instead requiring those lower court judges, as Chevron Deference does, to defer to the agency, then you're, the, the, the law is constantly in a state of flux because the agency at any point in time can mm. change what it's saying the meaning of the law is. And the judges are forced to acquiesce in that changed meaning of the law whenever the agency says so. And that's really not the role that we typically think of judges having. I don't think it's the role that the Constitution gives Article Three judges in our system.
0: And you say rely on judges that the system should just, if there's confusion, then go to a court, right? The judges should be interpreting the law. But Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson said that's going to result in chaos here, that suddenly we're not going to have this, we wouldn't have this deference. Does this hamstring these agencies if it didn't exist or increase litigation to a point where it is chaotic?
1: Well, I think what it does is it makes it so that these agencies can't uh, extend their power the way that they're doing now. And that if they want more power or, in this case, more funding, then they have to go to Congress and they have to get Congress to be clear about what Congress wants in that respect. So do I think it hamstrings the agency? No, I think, look, if, if it's hamstringing agencies, it's because agencies are uh, going above and beyond their statutory authority all the time. Uh, but if you're talking about is it still going to be possible for agencies to do their job if they lose Chevron deference? Well, absolutely. If they're following the will of Congress and they're doing what the statute empowers them to do, then they're not, there aren't, there isn't going to be litigation over that. It's only when they exceed their statutory mm. authority that folks are going to say, hey, wait a minute, you can't get away with that anymore.
0: Megan Laff, Fisheries Liaison for SeaFrees, and Mark Chenoweth with the new Civil Liberties Alliance. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thank you.
5: flip a chair and join me Rachel Campos Duffy
6: and me former U.S. Congressman
4: Sean Duffy as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America.
6: Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at Foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Fox News Radio on demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app.
2: Download it today.
5: This is Tommy Lahren with your Fox News commentary coming up.
2: Five days before the New Hampshire primary, the 2024 focus is on the White House race. But Republicans also have their eyes on control of the next Congress. Now, to do that, they'd, of course, have to keep their House majority and flip at least two blue seats red, which is possible. 23. Of the 33 seats on the ballot in November are currently held by Democrats. In three of those states, Donald Trump won in 2016 and 2020. Montana, Ohio, and West Virginia, where Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is not running for re-election. He told Fox & Friends yesterday... I'm not running again because you cannot fix Washington inside of Washington. Michigan is also in play. Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow is... Also not running for another term. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin is the frontrunner in the Democratic race. And polls show she is neck and neck in a hypothetical matchup with any of the three leading Republicans. Former Detroit Police Chief James Craig or former Congressman Peter Meyer or Mike Rogers.
4: It is very, very important. It's the only open seat
2: we can flip
4: and we take out West Virginia, that's kind of a done deal. They're going to win that race.
2: Mike Rogers is also a former congressman who chaired the House Intel Committee. So we
4: win Michigan. We will be guaranteed to take back uh, the control of the United States Senate. And believe me, Michiganders and the rest of the country are dying for that to happen.
2: I know a couple of years ago, there was an attempt to win the Senate seat there. Didn't work out very well. And at the time, abortion was a very big issue in your state, trying to protect a woman's right in the state constitution. But in 2024, that won't be on the ballot, correct?
4: That won't be on the ballot. And uh, certainly there is... No course of action that I would take that would would undo what the Michigan citizens have voted for. And, and, uh, you know, kind of enshrined in the Constitution, the state of Michigan. That's a state issue. I I supported Roe versus Wade going back to the states. that did. Michiganders uh, spoke loud and clear on that
2: issue. So as you run this time around, what is your biggest issue?
4: Well, it's several things. One, that we've got to fix the border. I mean, it's getting dangerous. So, as a um, former military guy, I'm a former special agent with the FBI, worked organized crime. You look at the challenges of and the national security threat coming through our southern border. It gets worse by the day. So, it's not just the fact that last year the government would spend somewhere around 350 billion dollars taking care of illegal immigrants, by the way, including jettison and, and uh, evicting kids from schools so that they could put illegal immigrants in there and house them. Uh, it's about the fact that the FBI is ringing the bell saying, hey, we, we have a Hamas and a Hezbollah terrorist threat here, and the southern border is contributing to that. And then you think in Michigan, we had uh, organized Uh, crime gangs come up through the southern border from latin america come up into michigan and we're running very sophisticated home invasion home burglary uh rings around uh, the the suburbs of the city of detroit and then you had drugs and human trafficking and fentanyl i mean it's this thing is getting worse by the day you cannot be a great country if you cannot secure your border
2: now republicans in the senate currently are holding up military aid to Israel and Ukraine, trying to get border policy changes. I'm assuming you support them on that?
4: I do. I mean, this is one of the most dangerous national security threats we face. I mean, we just don't know who's coming across something. You know, now it's over 2 million what they call gotaways. These are people that they don't know who they are, uh, they don't really know where they came from and they don't know what their intentions are, and they're roaming around the countryside in the United States of America. That's just dangerous. And so I think they have to ramp up the pressure to get this done. The Democrats are just
2: content to let this thing burn out of control. Are You You said you have several different issues beyond the border. What else?
4: Yeah. So we're energy independent, huge. You know, One of the reasons I talk about how we should be engaged in the world. Uh, is by being engaged, not entangled. And when you look at what the Biden administration has done uh, to, in all of these decisions, making us less able to be energy independent, that means you've got to have the... He has to go to Saudi Arabia and beg for, beg for oil. They're borrowing and spending so much money uh, that it's creating huge inflationary factors. That Biden inflation is costing the average Michigan family about $950 a month more than it was just 40 years ago when Donald Trump was in office. And so huge, we've got to get our handle on that and and get people's uh, personal economy back up and running. And the last part of that, is we have a an education crisis in America we have a literacy crisis in America and last year in the United States of America about half of high school seniors couldn't read at the 6th grade level you can't be a great country you can't have future prosperity you can't compete with a country like China when we're doing that to ourselves what would so you it's do
2: If if you're a senator, what would you do? I mean, education policy, a lot is formed on a local level. What would you do as a senator?
4: If you can't read by the fourth grade in the fourth grade, you have a 70% chance of going to prison or being on welfare. So those are two areas where we can make an impact for adults. If you're on welfare, I want to get you help. I think we should we should help you when you're down, but you also we don't want to sentence you to a lifetime of poverty. And so we would require a reading uh, reclamation program, take a reading assessment, see where you're at. Get your reading level up to where you can uh, fill out a job application and and better your skill set for uh, for a better life. And by the way, there's Title One money that goes into test where third graders are at, and apparently it takes about a year to get this test back. Well. By then, you're finishing up the fourth grade. We've got to start putting pressure on schools to doing reading, writing, and arithmetic. I mean, the test scores are abysmal and getting worse. If we don't do something, uh, it's going to cause huge problems. And the last part of that, think of this, one of the problems that the military is having a hard time recruiting, because when kids show up to take the test to get in, they don't read well enough to pass it. So it's impacting our national security, it's certainly impacting our economy, and it's impacting our ability to pass a really great and prosperous country to the next generation. All of that needs to be done. And here's the good news, all of that can be done.
2: Congressman, another big issue for Republican voters is fighting crime. There have been a lot of places around the country where crime has risen in the last couple of years, and they, and and they want lawmakers and uh, people in power to do more to 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 stop that. Now, one of your opponents in the Republican Senate race in Michigan, who's ahead of you in some polls, has been the police chief, former police chief in Detroit, James Craig. So he's a former police chief. Uh, how do you say that you're the better choice over someone like him?
4: Well, the good news is we've got law enforcement endorsements all across the state. So it's not me saying it. It's uh, chiefs of police. It's uh, in southeast Michigan. It's uh, county sheriffs uh, and it's the Police Officers Association of Michigan, which is the largest kind of working cop organization in the state. Um, and so they're all saying, it's Mike Rogers, got to be Mike Rogers. So I have a record on being a good partner and how the federal government helps local police uh, be more effective and more impactful. And so we've laid out some plans and uh, we've talked to a lot of police departments how to help them on the fentanyl problem. And in Michigan, think of this, we have uh, eight uh, of the top 50 most violent cities. And it's not just murder. It's a whole host of other things, aggravated assault and rape and other things. And that's unconscionable. And so uh, in talking to the chiefs, we've uh, I think we're going to formulate a plan here that I'll push when I'm getting into the Senate uh, to help get them off the list. My job is to make sure those eight cities are off the list. I'm a former FBI agent. I was actually a street agent that worked cases and sources and you know, put handcuffs on people and put them in jail. And and they understand that I have that uh, that kind of up-close-and-personal experience in law enforcement. Uh, and as my work as the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee when I was in Congress uh, clearly showed about the power of sharing information in the right place to have a better outcome. And so that's why I'm getting those endorsements, even over, you know, somebody else that, that was the—he was the civilian
2: police chief. At the time, you mentioned being the chair of the House Intel Committee. Certainly, you have kept your eye on what's happening in the Middle East. Is a big flare-up point lately, with not only the war in Gaza, but the expansion with the U.S. being under attack in different places in Iraq and Syria, and with what's happening with the Houthi militants in the Red Sea, targeting ships. The U.S. has designated them, you know, a special global terror group. Was that the right move, in your opinion?
4: Well, they sh- the, the right move is yes. The wrong move was taking them off the list in the first place. The Biden administration could not have screwed up the Middle East any more than they've managed to do. It started with that absolute debacle of a withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, that ended up costing 10 military personnel their lives uh, by turning their security over to the Taliban, which was, by the way, a terrorist organization. I mean, that was the beginning of really... Bad decisions that are having uh, catastrophic consequences, taking the Houthis off the list, telling the Saudis that they can't go after the Houthis uh, while they were negotiating with Iran on their nuclear deal. I mean, you could just go down this list of the things that they have done, the Biden administration
2: and their team to screw this up. Congressman, we're less than a week away from the New Hampshire primary in the presidential race. Former President Trump won big in Iowa. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis still in the race, challenging him with the next contest ahead. You have already endorsed former President Trump in this race. Why did you do that ahead of the contests?
4: So a couple of things. One of the things that we know is that I believe the border is a very serious national security and criminal uh, risk to 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 U.S. citizens. Uh, Donald Trump's the only one that actually secured the border when he was president. The economy, your 401k was better uh, under that. The unemployment was down. I mean, small businesses were less burdened with this overregulation. These are things that need to be done and need to be done quickly. Uh, and I believe that the president, uh, President Trump, will have the ability to get these things done quickly. Uh, and he's going to need a partner in the Senate to help close the border, to get the economy back under control. we got a lot of work to do to get America back on track, and we have to do it quickly. And I think Donald
2: Trump is the guy to do it quickly. Do you expect him to come out and endorse you?
4: I didn't ask uh, ask him to do that. I had a very, very, uh, I thought, productive conversation with the president. And uh, and I'll be running for the Senate. I think Michigan is going to be a very, very important state. I argue the sooner everyone rallies around a candidate so we can continue to build for a very tough general election, uh, I think the better off we're all going to be.
2: Mike Rogers, former congressman, former chair of the House Intel Committee, now one of the candidates running for Senate in Michigan. The primary is coming up August 6th, though so a lot of time before that happens. Congressman, thank you very much for joining us. We wish you well.
4: Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
6: Fox News Podcasts Network.
0: I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.
6: Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary.
0: Tommy
2: Lahren. What's on your mind?
5: There's no two ways about it. Iowa was a blowout victory for Donald Trump. It was also a good night for conservatism, given Nikki Haley took third and did not overcome Governor Ron DeSantis. But now is the time to face the music for the DeSantis campaign. They bet it all on Iowa, and Trump still ran away with the caucus by a lot, so reality has set in. No matter what DeSantis does at this point, he will not overtake Trump. It's time to pack it in, go back to Florida, govern like hell, and then come back swinging in 2028. I firmly believe Ron DeSantis is the future of the GOP and America First movement, but he needs to cut his losses sooner than later to preserve his own strength for the next fight ahead. The base has spoken and the base still belongs to Donald J. Trump. So now is the time to circle the wagons around Donald Trump and fight like hell to get him back in that White House and defeat not only Joe Biden but all the leftists who have been working overtime to destroy America. I'm Tommy Lahren and you can watch my show Tommy Laren is Fearless at Outkick.com